stage time, I just wanna hit that new young pack, me a bang. With my manager, he times for a feature. But you don't get attached for the game. A hit shot, put a patch in his brain. I'm smoking no dead niggas, I match your name. Shorty toes fast, I can't hang with you, hang cause you hang with your pack. Then he gave me that name. Hello and welcome to The Greatest Show on Grass, a podcast that covers the Los Angeles Rams in light of the team's history. The Rams have a new head coach, and as we've already discussed, that man is 31-year-old Sean McVay. The Hollywood of today is obsessed with three things, youth, good looks, and remakes. And at first glance, two of these three obsessions, youth and good looks, get checked off with the hiring of the camera-friendly McVeigh. But the hiring's also a remake of sorts, for in 1938, Art Pappy Lewis was hired to lead the Rams at the age of 26, or some say 27, making him the youngest head coach in NFL history. Pappy Lewis is just one of many colorful characters in James C. Selecki's recent book, The Cleveland Rams, the NFL champs who left too soon. There's Damon Buzz Wetzel, the Ohio State grad who founded the team and gave it its name and imbued it with its flair for the razzle-dazzle. Hugo Bezdick, the team's first head coach in the NFL, who was fired three games into his second season and who then decided to become a farmer. Earl Dutch Clark, the grizzled and iconic face of the early NFL who went on to the Pro Football Hall of Fame despite failing to lead the Rams to a winning record in his four seasons as head coach. And of course, Dan Reeves, who bought the team in 1941, and although promising to keep the team in Cleveland, simply couldn't resist the allure of Tinseltown. A recipient of the Professional Football Researcher Association's Ross Award, the Cleveland Rams tells the story of the team's early struggles and eventual success, culminating in the 1945 championship over the Redskins. But more importantly, it's a glimpse into the soul of a team defined by contradiction. Blue-collar Appalachian roots with glamorous West Coast aspirations. As we move from the Jeff Fisher era and into the Sean McVay era, you can still see that struggle about the team's identity playing itself out. And so... The following interview with author and football historian James C. Selecki is ostensibly about the Rams of over three quarters of a century ago, but it's also about the Rams of today. You got some great stuff in there talking about um, Reeves in the uh, mid-1930s in Los Angeles attending games, yeah. college games at the Coliseum. I think you say USC games is what you say. Um, right. And just sort of starting to dream about and have this vision of a pro team playing uh, out in LA. And then you talk about Chili Walsh and, and, and uh, you know, going to school at Hollywood High and, you know, sort of, I, I at that moment I was, I couldn't help but think of Kevin Demoff uh, yeah, the uh, yeah. sort of second in command for yes. today's Rams. Um, you know, coming from Harvard Westlake, um, what it must have felt like for St. Louis fans uh, yeah. be, being told that the Rams were 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 their team, 
and have having the engineer of their at least uh, financial situation being taken care of by this uh, Angelino. Uh, it, it felt like like history repeating itself. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That, that's a good point. That's a, that's an excellent point about that. And you know, and and and, and as I think about it, I mean, the move with the Rams was. I mean, the writing was almost on the wall to some degree. You know, um, as, as I mentioned in the book, there was a there was a, a, a you know minority owner with Dan Reeves who just had had his eye on California. We had Chili Walsh who was from L.A. We had you know we had Bob Waterfield was from L.A. We had we had Adam Walsh, the head coach, was from L.A. It just seemed that there was just this, you know, this this westward sort of inclination to the team, even when they're still in Cleveland, you know. And you you do a great job showing just how twisted the road was to get to L.A. and how many yeah. things had to had to happen for this, and how easily the Rams could have um, ended up in Boston or right. merging with the Steelers. Or yep. being bought by Mickey McBride and, and and staying in Cleveland, it really a lot of things had to happen right. uh, for the Rams to get to LA. So it 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 makes it a more dramatic story, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And you're right. It, it, I mean, what a rocky road that was, you know. And I get into a few of those what if scenarios, you know. I mean, as, as soon as Reeves bought that team, he was going to move them to Boston, and you know, and and. This, this work got, got out within 24 hours or so, I think, and, and the civic leaders in Cleveland rose up, and you know, and um, and and then also, as, as I have in the book, um, George Preston Marshall steps in and says, hey, "Hang on, hang on a second. I just moved the Redskins out of Boston and down to Washington. Why would anybody want to move the team to Boston?" Which I think is ironic now, given the Patriots' success. Yeah. You know, you know, Boston is just—it's just not a pro football town. <laughs> <laughs> which is just laughable in, in hindsight. But, but um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are so many things that could have thwarted that path. It, and at least of which is just, you know, at the very end, here's Dan on the last, you know, on the five-yard line, so to speak, going to the meeting in early 1946 and being absolutely opposed by some of the most powerful owners among, in, in the NFL. They just they simply did not want him to leave, you know, to, to, to move from Cleveland, not least of which because, as I mentioned, Los Angeles at the time was 2,000 miles away from the next nearest uh, NFL market, which is Chicago. And I thought it was interesting what Dan Reeves said when he uh, he reassured them. He said, "You know, he said the uh, he said you know it's only about a 45-hour train ride from Chicago to Los Angeles, as if that were some sort of a balm to the, you know, the to the other owners." But no, you're absolutely right. That could have been that was a move that kind of threaded the needle a little bit there. And then, of course, once he got to Los Angeles and then had to, had to, they had to do the negotiations for the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really goes to show, I think, that Dan Reeves, I mean, that he was bound and determined that he was that he was going to do this. Yeah, he's a, fasc- you, he, he's a fascinating man. I think you, you capture a lot of his contradictions. I think you portray him both to be a visionary and also short-sighted in some ways. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that because you know uh, what I've heard, what I've seen about Dan up to this point has, to some degree, has been some has been kind of hagiography. You know, it's been, you know, if you look at the official history of Dan Reeves, is that well, he was an incredible innovator. You know, was the first to open up the West Coast, the first to you know to re-sign an African American player. Although I, you often see that he was the first to integrate the NFL, which of course was not true. The the NFL had been integrated in the twenties and thirties. 
So you hear a lot of that. You know, he was given the Pioneer, you know, he has a Pioneer Award named after him. And those are all true to, to varying degrees. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there was a little bit, um, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a duplicitous sort of nature to him as well. I mean, the fact that he would just tell a reporter in Cleveland just flat out, you know, um, no, I, we are not moving to Cleveland and or to, to Los Angeles. We are not moving from Cleveland, and, and I, you know I will have a statement for you at the end of this month. Yeah, you know I mean, I mean he just flat out knew he'd already dispatched Chili Walsh, you know, out to California to begin making arrangements. Chili Walsh began to. Uh, prepare for the possibility that I think there's the second the second option that they were throwing out that was maybe to move to Dallas, you know. So I mean, all those preparations were happening behind the scenes. So yeah, he was a complex guy, and uh, and his family, um, you know, you know, portrayed that as well. One thing his son Dan said was that um, he said his father had always absolutely wanted to, to, to be a football uh, owner. That was his dream from, from high school and into college. And, and really the reason why, and, and it was an interesting thing, the reason why he got out of it, you know, I mean, his, his family got, got out of it in 1971 was that he had told uh, Dan and his sisters, he had said, you know, when I pass away, he said, he said, just sell the team because it's just not, this isn't fun anymore. I, I don't want you guys having to deal with, you know, the, the, the negotiating with free agents and you know, by this time, football is becoming pretty big business. Dan Reeves loved to negotiate directly with the players, and, and so and that was the part that he most enjoyed. So, yeah, the, the thing that comes through is his passion for the game and um, and also the fact that he was a little bit of a maverick and was a little bit of an outsider as well uh, among the other owners. They never quite saw him. He was he was younger. He was kind of a Sharpie from New York City. You know, they never the other owners kind of saw him as maybe a bit of an interloper, you know. We were talking about uh, history uh, repeating itself um, and the Rams leaving St. Louis and the Midwest 70 years uh, to the day that they left Cleveland. Uh, yeah. And um, I think there was another interesting kind of uh, coincidence emerged um, because I'm, I'm talking to you from Los Angeles. Um, right. And there was... A myth, I think, um, for 20, 22 years, 20, 22 years here, that the reason the Rams uh, left Los Angeles was because um, the local community didn't support them. Right. And, and I think that's a big uh, point that you try to make uh, yeah. th throughout your book, um, dispelling this notion that the Rams weren't supported by Cleveland. Exactly, exactly. You know, and and uh, you bring up a good point. That's why I think near the end of the book, I mentioned, I say, you know, it, it, it becomes almost a catch-22. You know, it's like, you know, the ownership is saying, well, you know, we'll invest in the team and give you a winning team once you support us. And the fans are saying, hey, we'll support you once you give us a reason to, to root for the team. And I think you're right. In L.A., you know, that was, that was it was fatal when that team was moved out of the city and moved down to Orange County. I mean, clearly, you know, that was the beginning of of, of problems for, 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 for the Rams. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's similarly in Cleveland. It was, I mean, this was, this was in many respects, a pretty bad team. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, well, you know, I mean, they had a few good players, but it, for, for, for some of those dry, you know, those, those, those 
dry years there in the late 30s and, and early 40s, it wasn't that great of a, of a team that was put on the field. And Cleveland was hardly alone in those days. You know, I mean, as, as I mentioned, Boston, you know, just was not, you know, and the NFL was not really taking hold there. Um, you know, so it was hardly an uncommon thing. St. Louis football didn't take hold there. Cincinnati it didn't really take hold. Um, but as I mentioned, in that 1945 season and the Rams, as they started to win in 45, the fans of Cleveland started to turn out. And 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 that one of the last home games that they had at League Park against the Packers, where the, the which was a huge victory for the Rams, they finally had a, had a breakthrough and they took both games from the Packers. As I mentioned, there's a you know that, that League Park was uh, there were fans that were five thousand people beyond the capacity of the ballpark, and say so they erected temporary stands. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's I mean there's a lot more fan support there, and it was really just galvanizing, which is hence the, you know the subtitle of the book, you know the champs. NFL champs who left too soon. It was as if they were just about to turn that corner and really get a groundswell of fan support, which, of course, the Browns got in 1946. You know, so, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that that timing, right there. But, yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely right. There's a myth, you know, the fans didn't support the Rams in L.A., and there's a myth as well. Yeah, they didn't support him at Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. And we talk about a lot on this show about this kind of marriage between Hollywood and the Los yeah. Angeles Rams and how the Rams in a lot of ways of Los Angeles are, are a kind of conversation uh, mm-hmm. between Hollywood and football, pro football. Um, yeah. One of the things I found really uh, almost shocking was <laughs> like all of these seeds, you don't make a big deal of it, but these seeds of Hollywood kind of articulating itself in pro football, even while they're in Cleveland. Um, yeah. The after the Rams' first game, you allude to this cameo that um, the found co- co-founder of the team, I guess, with Homer Marshman, Buzz Wetzel, uh, makes in a movie in 1936. You don't say what that that movie is, but um, I would. Oh yeah, love to know yeah. what that is. Johnny Drake uh, is this um, one of the uh, early fullback. I think a first round, early first round pick becomes a, is a Hollywood cowboy stuntman in the yeah. offseason. And then there's the story yep. of Bob Hope, who who later becomes a co-owner of this team, somehow making his way to Cleveland to, to help uh, yeah. do a PR stunt for the Cleveland Rams? Cleveland Rams. Yeah, well, um, in that case, but... Yeah, in that case, Bob Hope was from Cleveland, so so um, that was so he made the yeah. same. The, the Rams make the same journey as Bob Hope. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. A Westford journey. No, you, that's a good point. And they're, they're, you're right. There was those shadow for for shadowings. And then, of course, Bob Waterfield was an extra. Sure. In Hollywood too. So you're right. There was. It was almost like there was a, that bit of foreshadowing that was going on, kind of leading up, leading up to the to, to the Rams actually going to L.A. And so, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there was always a little bit of a show busyness to, to the team. Oh, I mean, a little they had bit their... of show busyness. Yes. Yeah. Even the, talking mean, about foreshadowing, you you mentioned the um, this. Um, I, 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 once again, something I didn't know. I did know that Dutch Clark uh, was this iconic um, football kind of um, example in, in the in in the early days of football. I did not know that that Life magazine image of him was on was owned by Betty Davis and Bing Crosby. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and they, then yeah. it shows up on the wall. 
behind yeah. Dan Reeves' desk at the Commerce Building in Cleveland. What kind? How, how could there be more ominous a foreshadowing about this team that would become uh, kind of obsessed with image to this day? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that. Absolutely and, you know, and, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it, it, that's a good, that's a really good point. And even you know, and as I even mentioned, even the colors. I mean, they're they're you know the the blue and yellow was they, those are pretty those are pretty vibrant colors for the time as well. That they you know once the NFL came to them, the Rams says we know started in red and black, and the NFL came to them and said you know you guys really should change your colors, and so they switched to a very vibrant blue blue and yellow. You know. Um, if you see, if you get a rare colorized picture of their uniforms from the 30s, it's it, they're pretty. They pop a, a lot for that era. So yeah. What should LA Rams fans um, appreciate about their their team's early Cleveland days? I mean, you say you end the book with this kind of um, almost like an exhortation um, that um, that even though the Cleveland Rams cease to exist, their spirit. Um, still are very much alive in Los Angeles. Uh, long live, yeah. long live the Rams. What What do you think? What do you want LA Rams fans to know about the origins of their team? Well, I think you know it started right from the beginning. You know, I mean, Damon Buzz Wessel came in, and you know, he was going to bring a team that was going to be, you know, was going to have the old, you know, what they called the razzle dazzle in those days. You know, there's going to be a lot of passing, a lot of a lot of laterals. And, um, and, and I think that spirit still abuse the Rams to this day when they're at their finest, you know, there's a little bit of flash to them, you know, as I was growing up, you know, again, as a Browns fan, but the Rams always had this sort of flash to them, you know, Roman Gabriel, a quarterback and, you know, and, and just, I mean, just that link to LA and Hollywood. So I guess what I would want to impart is, you know, the team's, the, the, the DNA of the team hasn't really changed, you know, it may have started in Cleveland and it kind of, you know, went through St. Louis, but it's interesting to me that it, it, in some respects is still Buzz Wetzel's team. You know, he was the guy, he ultimately was crucified, of course, because, um, you know, he and Hugo Bezdick, because they attempted, Hugo Bezdick in particular, attempted to get away from the flash and, you know, to get the, to get the Rams off the ground in Cleveland and go to a, a kind of a boring running game. But ultimately, ultimately, what was, you know, what caused the team to succeed even in Cleveland? I mean, when they brought in Bob Waterfield, they had Jim Benton. So I think that that would be it. It's just the seeds of the, of the team. You, you know, they really, uh, the city may change, but, you know, the basic DNA of the team has stayed pretty consistent for, you know, for 80 years now. What, um, you, you've talked about how the memory um, of the team has all but been erased in Cleveland. And that's... I guess yeah. part of the motivation for writing this book. Uh, hypothetically, you have a layover in Cleveland and you want to check out um, some uh, geographical locations that were relevant to, to Ram's history. And obviously there aren't plaques uh, that you can go read from to learn about these things. But how would you go about... Um, uh, or, or forget about how would you go about it. But what, what are the three or four places in Cleveland... Um, that um, were really the most significant um, to the Rams um, coming of age? Well, first of all, for sure you'd have to go to Leak Park. And, um, you know, Elite Park is now, it's been engulfed by, you know, by an urban neighborhood. And, uh, you know, the Indians played there as well for, for years and years. But, um, but the Rams played nearly half of their games in Cleveland at Leak Park. 
And as I mentioned in the book, it's it's it was a baseball park, but it's it was just happened to be rectangular due to the fact that it was uh, you know there was it was engulfed you know just it was uh, it was almost. Uh, surrounded by the neighborhood so it created a rectangular shape which i think was perfect for football so for sure i would go to the near east side you definitely want to see lee park it's still there it's been revitalized it's been it's been uh, it's they're turning into into a baseball museum and so i've been at Payne's, i and a few other people here in cleveland to remind them okay it wasn't just a baseball park there was an nfl team played here as well um in fact there's a very iconic picture of bob waterfield um uh, from Life magazine of Bob Waterfield kicking, uh, place kicking a ball with Jane Russell holding the ball. And uh, it was one of those kind of stunty sort of uh, pictures that were common in the 40s. But that picture, uh, uh, it was taken within an empty League Park. So for sure I go to League Park. Shaw Stadium. It's not that far away um, from there. That's Still the there. high school that they played the at? The high school? <laughs> yep, the high school stadium for, for two games. Although, you know, and it, that's interesting, too, because, it, you know, as I take pains to note. It was it's a state a of bit, the, I know, state of the art. <laughs> exactly. It really, was, it, it really was at the time. It it's only hard 10, to believe. 000. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Right. But it's still um, it's still there. I would definitely check out um, Shaw Stadium. Um, and then... Uh, Probably, uh, you know, even right downtown, just off of Public Square, is a, is a building as the May Company, and, and as I mentioned, that's where the 36 Rams, um, one of their major investors, agrees. That was where the owners used to gather at, for lunch, and they would tote up the uh, the receipts, you know, for, for all the bills for the team for the week, and then they would reach in their pockets and uh, and, and and pay for pay the team's bills. That building is still there. I mean, most of these structures. For for all the peculiarness of Cleveland, most of these structures are still there. Ironically enough, the one that is gone is Cleveland Municipal Stadium, where the you know where the where the Rams actually won their championship. Now it's but on that same footprint, of course, now is First Energy Stadium, where uh, the Browns now play, and. You know, it's a crime, as you said. There are no plaques down there. There's, there's nothing. There's no plaques to the Rams anywhere in Cleveland. Least of all at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which is probably with that where it deserves it the most of all. Uh, there is a plaque at League Park, and I don't believe it makes any reference to the Rams. It does make reference to the Indians. It makes reference to the Cleveland Buckeyes of the Negro League who played there. I don't believe it says anything about the Rams. So that's 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 a bit of my. You know, my contention is that the Rams, the history has just been sort of just lost, you know, which is, I mean, the Browns just came in and it was almost just erased it. It just, the, the Rams went down the memory hole, you know, once the Browns came in. So, Art Pappy Lewis. <laughs> um, yeah. Could you talk about him, just sort of like how he fits in the um, lineage of Rams coaches? Because... A lot of people, especially here in Los Angeles, have brought up his name recently in conjunction with with uh, the Sh- Sean McVay getting hired at the age of, of 30 to become the Rams head coach. Yeah. Um, yeah, in terms of, of the lineage, he... Um Boy, you know, if, if I look for comparisons with with Sean, with Sean McVay, you know, it, it'd be kind of tough to make the comparisons. I mean, here you had Art Lewis was, I mean, he was still essentially a a, a, a player when he became coach. You know, as I mentioned, he was in fact he even jumped in a few games there. Um, just a short term coach, as I mentioned, eight games, and when they when they when they took him out then and brought in Dutch Clark, I mean, I think that's a hard pill for 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 Art Lewis to swallow. 
they made him assistant coach, you know, underneath, uh, underneath Dutch Clark. And, um, and he only, you know, he lasted about a year or two left the NFL and, um, and never coached in the NFL again. In fact, I think, I think I know the first three or four Rams coaches, um, after the, weirdly enough, after the is almost the graveyard for these guys in terms of being professional coaches, never coached in the NFL again. So, but Pappy was kind of an interesting guy, as I mentioned in the book. He, um, you know, came from uh, came from Southern Ohio, was more of Appalachia, which is the same place that uh, Damon Buzz Wessel was from, same place that Homer Marshall was from. All from Southern Ohio, sort of southeastern um, Appalachian. And Buzz Wetzel yep. and, and Homer Marshman are basically, you sort of position them as the fathers of this team, or the forefathers of this team. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And Marshman, I think, gets a lot of that credit. Um, Wetzel, not nearly enough credit, in my opinion. It was really Wetzel who galvanized, um, who got the idea to start a pro football team, who really, um, in fact, he went to Marshman and other money people and uh, and, and got, got the Rams funded. But it was really Buzz Wetzel who was the uh, sort of the unheralded true father, I, I think, I would, I would assert, of the Rams, when you think of just the spirit of, of a team. And he assembled some of his, uh, you know, some of his uh, colleagues, uh, you know, his, his, his uh, teammates from Ohio State, including Sid Gilman. You know, was among the players. He he really kind of he kind of you know leaned on Sid Gilman a little bit. Sid Gilman really had no desire to play pro football at all. He wanted to coach. And, and my uh, goodness, you gave us a, the answer to a fantastic trivia question uh, about uh, who scores the first uh, touchdown in that's right. Rams history. Yep. Um, Sid Gilman was, I guess, playing end at the time when yep. he, when he caught it. Um, Fascinating, fascinating yeah. details. Um, so, getting back to Pappy Lewis, any idea why his his nickname was Pappy? I think I got that when he was a student at Ohio University, and um, I, I, I could never really find out why they called him that. Um, yeah. It was just one of those those, those things that I think just just cropped up as an undergraduate. Um, but he, uh, the other interesting thing about him, as I think I mentioned, is he um, he had a way about him. That, that that he was almost a shapeshifter. Um, they said that he could. He was very malleable when he when he would attempt to talk to players or recruit players, um, where he could almost mimic or or you know uh, ingratiate himself to to a player to his to a player's parents, and um, so that was kind of kind of a unique uh, aspect of him, and also very loud. Um, very had had a very had a big booming voice as a coach as well. So. Yeah, a very salt of the earth type guy, um, and uh, you know it's, it's a little unfortunate. He only lasted you know those eight games. It's 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 very possible he might have had more success as coach than Dutch Clark. But you know, yeah, he reminds me of uh, you know I'm, the whole time I'm thinking about him and Sean McVay as I'm reading the book. But um, he reminds me a little bit more of of John Fossil in a way, um, almost yeah, a kind of youthful interim coach who maybe maybe doesn't mind so much sliding into a assistant capacity um dutch dutch clark and and pappy lewis come to be known as lewis and clark and it doesn't seem like um there's a lot of tension between them as you describe it was there no uh, as far as i know that there really wasn't i mean dutch clark was 
you know, laid back guy almost to the point of perhaps maybe too much, you know, and, uh, and which might've been, which might've been not necessarily good for that team, but yeah, they seem to, there seemed to be kind of a mutual respect. They had played against each other as players and, uh, and, and yeah, you're right. I think Pappy Lewis has kind of slid right into that assistant role and probably had a lot of respect for Dutch Clark too. Dutch Clark was, was the number one player at the time. He's one, he's the highest player in the NFL at the time and pretty much, you know, an early superstar for the league. So, so I think there was some of that too. Finally, uh, the climax of your book, I, I think, is um, the uh, championship game of 1945. Uh, you call it the coldest, strangest game ever played. Um, <laughs> could you, and of course, your 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 father, as a ten year old, and your grandfather yeah. are at right. this game. Your your it's brilliant how you tell the story. It's it's in vivid technicolor um, when Sammy Baugh throws uh, the ball against the gold po- goal post. Um, you immediately cut to your uh, your your ten year old father and his father for their reactions. It's really just um, beautifully told. Um, you talk about the players bundling up with straw on the sideline during this yeah. zero degree game. Can you can you talk about why this game was so dramatic for the people in attendance? Well, first of all, it was incredibly cold. I mean, and, and as my father told me, he said, he said, that's the thing he most remembers is just how incredibly cold. And, you know, for those of you out there who, who've never been to Cleveland, had the pleasure of being in Cleveland and, and you know, in a in, in five-degree weather, I can assure you it, it, it never quite leave, leaves you. I, I attended Browns games in the 70s and 80s in that same stadium, and, and, and so I know what it's like. So, yeah, first of all, that incredible cold. I mean, it was just – it had snowed all week. They had um, – the, the the groundskeepers had done something which at the time was fairly common, which was to uh, lay straw down on the field and then lay a tarp on top of that. And then on top of which about another foot and a half of snow came down throughout the week preceding the game. So you had this situation here where the day of the game, they had a they had to bring in hundreds of high school kids and volunteers and, and servicemen who were home for the war to go out on that field and shovel all that snow off the, off the field, to peel back the tarp, to get pitchforks and, uh, and, and wagons to, to rake up all that straw, just to clear that field. And then, um, which created this very surreal sort of look. If you see pictures from that game, you just see these just huge, uh, you know, bales of straw. In fact, one of the Redskins uh, touchdowns, you get to see the, you know, the, 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 the pass receiver goes into the end zone and almost has to high kick it through the, through the straw that's kind of ringing around, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the, the end zone. So, but, you know, even, even in spite of all that, then as, as uh, the groundskeeper said, nonetheless, in spite of all those, those prescriptive efforts, the field just, he said, just froze, you know, like a, like a bullet. It just, in fact, Don Greenwood, who is the fullback for the Rams, pretty much injured his shoulder in that game. He just, he was tackled and he, um, early in the game and was never, never quite the same after that. And then you had Sammy Baugh, who is this, this incredible Hall of Fame quarterback. He was operating injured. He was, he only played about a quarter and a half. And as you said, and that was the most bizarre, of course, play of the game that still has gone down in a history is that uh, Baugh went back, backed up in his own end zone with his back to what became the dog pound, the infamous dog pound for the Browns, um, was on about the one yard line. And then um, the, the, the play preceding it, he had actually um, faked a punt and then kind of threw to his right, and the ball just oh, 
it's really stiff wind. It's very windy that day, too. A stiff wind caught the ball and just kind of just died about the 10-yard line. The next play, though, he had a receiver heading down the, the left sideline. So he was going to just hit a quick pass, a quick, strong pass, and he was going to hit that receiver. And the receiver said for sure, he said, if I had, if that ball had gotten to me, that was a touchdown. It said the ball bounces off the, uh, the, the, uh, the crossbar and drops back into the end zone. And everybody just stopped. I've, there's actually film out there. You can see on YouTube. You can there's really film of, of that part of the game. You see the ball just kind of bounce, you know, skitter into the end zone and it stopped and you know just stopped there. And all the players look at each other like, well, you know, what what just happened? <laughs> you know. And as my father said, nobody knew knew what what had gone on. The game had stopped, and then suddenly they put two points on the board for the Rams. And again, they were still puzzled. You know. Now, of course, the the, the, the that was the that was the margin of the game. The Rams won fifteen to fourteen because of that bizarre. Um, Safety, and then of course the postscript of that, George Preston Marshall, the owner of the Redskins, so angered that he had lost the game, a one-point game on such a silly uh, safety, was that uh, uh, passed a rule in the, in the off-season and now called the, uh, uh, you know, the the the, the ball mar- the Marshall Ball Rule, which is that if a ball bounces off the uh, the goalpost and goes back in the end zone, now it's just a dead ball. So to this day, if that play happens, it's a dead ball in, in, in the NFL. So those are just a few of the, just the bizarre, a very surreal sort of environment. You know, you have these guys who've just come home from the war. They're, they're, they're gathered on the sidelines in blankets, uh, you know, in those leather helmets. I just, you know, just, just in these black and white pictures, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, such a stark, you know, uh, uh, image for the game. If you see it and, and, and the players, I mean, the players were just bundled up, you know, the Rams have both, they, they had their, they had their, their, uh, their away jerseys over their shoulder pads underneath their home jerseys. I mean, they just wore layers of clothing. They had, they had, you know, tried to have chemical hand warmers on the sidelines. Um, you know, one guy, um, uh, were most most scary. Who was the captain of the team? Said, you know, he said it wasn't so bad for us for those of us who were playing because we were actually moving. And of course, back in those days, players played both ways. But he said, the, he said the guys on the sidelines who just sat there for two three hours. He said they just froze. It was just terrible. So it was such a surreal, bizarre game. Um, as the game ended and the fans came out of the field and they lifted up Waterfield, you know, I mean, again, showing that the you know Cleveland really supported this team. And Waterfield went with it for a little bit, and here's this Southern California guy, and he finally said, "Hey, you know, we got to get indoors, or else we're all going to freeze here." You know, he was just he was not going to be on that field for a very long celebration. This is, you know, he was not accustomed to that kind of weather. So, so for all those reasons, um, and and oh, and, I, and the other thing I mentioned in there is um, some of the fans were setting some of that straw on fire in the stands. And, yeah, and it must have fo- looked like hell to the the Redskins. Must have <laughs> felt like they were walking into hell. I mean, we talk a lot about the Rams being this glamour team and maybe, you know, the passing oriented gimmickry or uh, originating in um, in Cleveland. There is another side to this, um, a side that maybe stays behind Um, this kind of dog pound esque element of the team's identity where it must have been just incredibly horrifying to have to. Uh, play uh, uh, in Cleveland against this team. <laughs> That's a good point. In fact, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the 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 setting the straw on fire. I mean, this is not. 
you know, this is not too too far removed from some of the infamy of the Browns in the 80s and 90s of, you know, throwing snowballs, you know, at, at injured players and throwing batteries, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and Sorry, beer bottles. To laugh, but it is, yep. yeah, it is insane. Right. And then, and then of course, uh, um, um, and also there was quite a bit of drinking going on. Um, which is, uh, I think I have a quote from somebody saying that this is, you know, some of the, uh, an out of town sports writer said, I, I think I, I saw more inebriates at that game than almost any pro, any football game I've ever seen before. And that, and that, that's a grand tradition that's continued on to this day in Cleveland. So that's how you get through a three or four hour cold Browns game, particularly these days. <laughs> yeah. It's how Jane Russell got through the, uh, Cleveland Rams games. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, thank you so much. Um, for joining us on the greatest show on grass um thank you for writing this book it is uh, you know i a lot of the books we 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 spotlight on this show are 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 things that belong on every rams fans uh bookshelf this i I really just feel like it belongs on the shelf of any uh nfl history buff um it's just incredibly well written vivid um, dramatic. It's just pitch perfect, and I and I really can't recommend this book enough. Well, thanks, Joshua. I really appreciate that, and th- thanks for the uh, you know for 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 talking and for the interview. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for listening to the greatest show on grass. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and then review it on iTunes, and recommend it to the Rams fans in your lives, whether they've been rooting for the team for eighty years. Or one year. Swag we the fashion. Bitch, love us, no, we cash it. Niggas know us, we about that action.